Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 29th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's start with the weather forecast from KCRG. The headline is, Morning Flurries Linger, but Generally Quieter Weather Ahead. Most of the next several days will be precipitation-free, though there are a couple of exceptions. The first is this morning, when a few lingering flurries or quick snow showers are passing through the area. This is the last gasp of the very active weather pattern we've been dealing with for over the last several days. This activity is unlikely to add much accumulation or make much of a difference in road conditions around the area. It also winds down over the next few hours, and clouds will generally decrease throughout the day. Temperatures head for the upper 30s to around 40 by the afternoon. But wind chills will be back toward the low 30s with occasionally brisk northwesterly winds. Watch out for slick spots on paved surfaces today, especially during the morning. Any liquid likely froze overnight, especially on surfaces that haven't been treated with salt or other substances to help it melt. The main roads are generally in decent shape, but side streets, sidewalks, and parking lots aren't as great. Use caution while driving or walking, especially in those areas, until conditions improve today. With clearer skies tonight, temperatures should decrease fairly efficiently and reach lows in the low to mid-twenties. This is another time period where any daytime snow melting could lead to refreezing and slick areas, so keep that in mind if heading out and about late tonight or Saturday morning. A few areas of patchy fog could develop early Saturday too, especially if we're able to melt a little snow today. Scattered clouds will be with us on Saturday, with temperatures similar to today. Winds should be a little bit lighter for much of the day. That begins to change by Saturday night as a cold front moves through, with winds increasing behind it. A few isolated snow showers accompany these winds as colder air pours into the state, though accumulation would likely be little to none. This activity could be around through around midday on Sunday. The colder air mass leads to highs hitting only the upper 20s to low 30s on New Year's Eve and day, so it'll be a chilly transition between 2023 and 2024. New Year's Eve night looks like it will be dry, so you'll just need to dress appropriately for the chilly temperatures that are expected. Much of next week looks fairly quiet too, with temperatures that start off a bit warmer on Tuesday and Wednesday in the mid to upper 30s. We'll see a bit of a decrease in those again by the end of the work week, with highs back in the low 30s at best, and overnight lows in the 10s and 20s. Let's turn now to the front page of The Courier, and the main story is titled, Maine Bars Trump from Ballot, U.S. Supreme Court to Weigh State Authority on Insurrection Clause. This story comes to us from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Portland, Maine. Maine's Democratic Secretary of State on Thursday removed former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot under the Constitution's Insurrection Clause, the first election official 
to take action unilaterally as the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to decide whether Trump remains eligible to return to the White House. The decision by Secretary of State Sheena Bellows follows a ruling earlier this month by the Colorado Supreme Court that booted Trump from the ballot there under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That decision has been stayed until the U.S. Supreme Court decides whether Trump is barred from Civil War-era provision, which prohibits those who, quote, engaged in insurrection from holding office. The Trump campaign said it would appeal Bellos's decision to Maine state courts, and Bellos suspended her ruling until that court system rules on the case. It's likely the nation's highest court will have final say on whether Trump appears on the ballot in Maine and in the other states. Bellows found Trump could no longer run for his prior job because his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol violated Section 3. She made the ruling after some state residents, including a bipartisan group of former lawmakers, challenged Trump's position on the ballot. Quote, I do not reach this conclusion lightly, Bellows wrote in her 34-page decision. Quote, I am mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I am also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection, unquote. The Trump campaign immediately slammed the ruling, quote, We are witnessing in real time the attempted theft of an election and the disenfranchisement of the American voter, Campaign spokesman Stephen Chunk said in a statement. Legal experts said Thursday's ruling demonstrates the need for the nation's highest court, which has never ruled on Section 3, to clarify what states can do. The timing on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision is unclear. Colorado's Republican Party appealed the Colorado High Court decision on Wednesday, urging an expedited schedule and Trump is also expected to file an appeal within the week. The petitioners in the Colorado case on Thursday urged the nation's highest court to adopt an even faster schedule so it could rule before March 5th, known as Super Tuesday, when 16 states, including Colorado and Maine, are scheduled to vote in the Republican presidential nominating process. The high court needs to formally accept the case first but legal experts consider that a certainty. While Maine has just four electoral votes, it's one of two states to split them. Trump won one of Maine's electors in 2020, so having him off the ballot there, should he emerge as the Republican general election candidate, could have outsized implications in a race that is expected to be narrowly divided. In her decision, Bellows acknowledged the U.S. Supreme Court will probably have the final word, but said it was important she did her official duty. That won her praise from the former state lawmakers who filed one of the petitions, forcing her to consider the case. Quote, Secretary Bellows showed great courage in her ruling, and we look forward to helping her defend her judicious and correct decisions in court. No elected official is above the law or our Constitution and today's ruling reaffirms this most important of American principles. 
Republican Kimberlyn Rosen, Independent Thomas Savalio, and Democrat Ethan Strimling said in a statement. Other Republicans in the state were outraged. Quote, this is a sham decision that mimics third world dictatorships, Maine's House Republican leader Billy Bob Frankenham said in a statement. Quote, it will not stand legal scrutiny. People have a right to choose their leaders devoid of mindless decisions by partisan hacks, unquote. The Trump campaign on Tuesday requested that Bellows disqualify herself from the case because she'd previously tweeted that January 6th was an insurrection and bemoaned that Trump was acquitted in his impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate after the Capitol attack. She refused to step aside. Quote, my decision was based exclusively on the record presented to me at the hearing and was in no way influenced by my political affiliation or personal views about the events of January 6, 2021, Bellows told the Associated Press on Thursday night. She is a former head of the main chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. All seven of the justices of the Colorado Supreme Court which split four to three on whether to become the first court in history to declare a presidential candidate ineligible under Section 3, were appointed by Democrats. Two Washington, D.C.-based liberal groups launched the most serious prior challenges to Trump in Colorado and a handful of other states. That's led Trump to contend the dozens of lawsuits nationwide seeking to remove him from the ballot under Section 3, are a Democratic plot to end his campaign. However, some of the most prominent advocates have been conservative legal theorists who argue that the text of the Constitution makes the former president ineligible to run again. Until Bellows's decision, every top state election official, whether Democrat or Republican, rejected requests to bar Trump from the ballot saying they didn't have the power to remove him unless ordered to do so by a court. Now, back to local news from The Courier. Double the blessing this holiday season for first-time parents. This story was written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin, and the dateline is Waterloo. A Cedar Valley family is especially grateful this holiday season as they continue to celebrate the premature birth of twins, Fraternal twins Lakin and Crew were born at 31 weeks to first-time parents Kelsey and Taylor Ketman of Waterloo in late November. Quote, we had no idea they were coming, Kelsey Ketman said. We did not have much warning at all. Taylor and I called Mercy One around 8 o'clock, and they had us come in, and by 10.50, we had two babies, unquote. Lakin, a girl, and Crew, her little brother, were both breech-borne by cesarean section at Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center. Lakin weighed 3 pounds 4 ounces. Crew weighed 3 pounds 8 ounces. The babies have gained around a pound apiece since birth. As they continue to grow, the babies are starting to show their personalities. According to their mom, Lakin, a big sister by three minutes, knows what she wants and when she wants it, like her mom. Crew is definitely more laid back, like his dad, unquote. And at this point in the article, we see the two twins dressed up in 
and Santa hats and checkered shirts and their inside oversized Christmas stockings. And they both have oxygen tubes taped to their little faces. Quote, it's been exhausting, but also so great. It's crazy to see them change and how quickly they have adapted to the outside world, Kelsey Ketman said while feeding crew. Since both babies were born around nine weeks premature, they have been staying in the Mercy One Waterloo Birth Center Neonatal Intensive Care Unit for the past month. Ketman is thankful for the -the around-the-clock support. NICU life is definitely something we haven't experienced before, but staff at Mercy One has made it a seamless process, she said. Since residents also stay in the NICU for an extended period of time, families have plenty of time to develop relationships with the NICU staff. The NICU staff is a small team, allowing staff to bond not only with the babies, but with the families as well. Lily Ward, a registered nurse, said working in the unit is special. Quote, It is fantastic being here. I can't imagine being anywhere else, Ward said. Ketman hopes to have both babies home in a few weeks, but does not have a time frame. First-time grandmother Linda McGarvey of Jessup, who also is a twin, cannot wait to spoil her grandbabies. Quote, I wasn't able to hold them for the first couple of weeks, but now I'm able to hold them, which I love. I also make sure that Kelsey sends me a picture every day, McGarvey said. More than 300 acres available for farming in support of City's Satori Health Trust Fund. Story written by Andy Malone. Dateline Cedar Falls. The city is seeking proposals for use of donated farmland in support of the Health Trust Fund, due at noon Friday. The three-year lease proposals are for the 320 acres of cropland outside of town off West 12th Street in both Blackhawk County and Grundy County. Proceeds from harvested crop will be the property of the tenant. The farmland lease revenue and property taxes, as well as the interest from the Health Trust Fund Board's investments, go into the trust for future grants for public health-related uses. The principal should only be used in negotiating a development agreement for a new hospital or health care provider, according to a city council directive. Bids will be evaluated based on proposed price per acre, as well as any land conservation or improvement plans, according to the city's request for proposals. Any other information will be considered, and references for other leases may be required. Proposal packets and further details can be obtained from the city's website or from Tyler Griffin, Water Reclamation Manager, 501 East 4th Street, or by calling area code 319-273-8633, or by emailing tyler.griffin at cedarfalls.com. A total of 390 acres are owned by the city on the western border of Blackhawk County. The Bells Trust, originally controlled by Satori Memorial Hospital, gifted the land to the city in 2001, according to budget documents. However, 70 acres are set aside for the city's biosolids land application program, 
the trust's principal, dates back to 1997. The city gave up the municipally operated Satori Memorial Hospital at the corner of College and Sixth Streets to Covenant Health System and sold the hospital's equipment and inventory for $8 million to be dedicated to the trust, according to Courier Archives. Securities were last known to total nearly $20 million. The Health Trust Fund Board meets at 7.30 a.m. on the second Thursday of May, July, November, and December at City Hall at 220 Clay Street. Next, a story written by Jeff Reinitz titled, Waterloo Woman Sentenced to Jail in Straw Man Gun Purchase Investigation. Dateline, Waterloo. A Waterloo woman has been sentenced to jail as part of a straw man gun purchase investigation. Judge C.J. Williams on Wednesday sentenced Jennifer Ann Watch, 45, to six months in jail to be followed by three years of supervised release on a charge of aiding and abetting a felon in possession of a firearm. The sentence was at the low end of recommended sentencing guidelines. According to court records, Watch bought handguns and a rifle from stores in Cedar Falls and Coralville. One of the weapons, a 9mm SCCY handgun, was later found with a member of the Sons of Silence Motorcycle Club who had a felony conviction. Officers found a 380 caliber Ruger LCP and ammunition when they searched her home as part of an investigation into the motorcycle club in September of 2019. Watch's boyfriend, Bradley Aaron Ball, who is also a Sons of Silence member, told investigators he told Watch to purchase the firearms. They later realized the consequences of straw man purchases and returned the guns, according to court records. Ball pleaded to charges of felon in possession of a firearm in May 2023. In September, he was sentenced to one year in prison to be followed by three years of supervised release. Court records indicate that in November 2018, while he was a member of the Sons of Silence Support Club, Ball was involved in a shooting at a rival motorcycle group's clubhouse. He allegedly drove to the Street Soldiers Clubhouse and other Sons members shot at the Street Soldiers record state. Waterloo Man Arrested in Teenager Sexual Abuse Investigation Story submitted by Jeff Reinitz Dateline Waterloo A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly having sexual contact with a teen. Blackhawk County Sheriff's deputies arrested Haven Shuker Burkett, 21, of 327 East Mullen Avenue for two counts of third-degree sexual abuse on December 15th. Bond was set at $25,000. He was also detained on probation violations. Authorities allege Burkett had sexual contact with a victim in 2022 and 2023, while the victim was 14 and 15 years old. Some of the incidents were recorded, according to court records. Burkett was on probation for an April 2021 home burglary on Sullivan Avenue. Next, Inspiration. Recent UNI grad fixes up 100-year-old home. 
one of Cedar Falls' worst nuisances. Cedar Falls. Several days a week, Corbin Hoffman walked by a house, an eyesore, on his way to class at the University of Northern Iowa. The 2022 real estate and finance graduate remembers the lawn being overgrown, a sapling coming up through the front porch, and vines along the side sprawling in through a window. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, he had a class in the spring of 2021 at the Rialto Dining Center building, a stone's throw away from the house at 1227 West 22nd Street. He didn't know it at the time, but it was one of the worst maintained houses in Cedar Falls. It was on a city watch list, and demolition was a possibility if the violations were not addressed. Hoffman would walk by and wonder why nothing was being done. Quote, it was the same thoughts every day, and I wondered what was going on here, he said. Hoffman, then a junior, eventually turned his thoughts into action. He acquired the house, about 100 years old, and fixed up the four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and basically every inch of the 1,300 square feet spread out over two floors. He now rents the house to four students at the University of Northern Iowa. The Charlotte, Iowa native and 2018 Goose Lake Northeast High School graduate had never renovated a house, but had experience with his hands. He had worked on a farm for his family's agricultural construction business and as a helicopter mechanic. However, there were more issues with the property than were evident at first glance. He found out it was the focus of a city condemnation hearing and considered for demolition due to structural deficiencies and the overgrowth. Hoffman was the only person who went to speak during a hearing on the property in November 2021, but was not allowed because he wasn't associated with ownership. After eventually getting the deed and reportedly laying out a plan to building official Jamie Castle, he found out firsthand why the property was considered a nuisance. Quote, I quickly realized I would have to remodel every square inch of this house. It needed plumbing. It needed wiring, he said. It needed a brand new roof. It needed a brand new furnace and AC unit. And it needed a cement driveway. All the floors had to be redone. All the walls had to be repainted. The whole kitchen and the bathrooms needed to be remodeled, unquote. The property was one of five in Cedar Falls in recent years, so dilapidated that it was deemed a public hazard. The others were 2208 Coventry Lane, 710 West 13th Street, and 1303 Walnut Street, 315 East Dunkerton Road, and 1312 Clay Street. They're all still standing. At least one of the others on Coventry Lane, after being sold, had its nuisances addressed, according to the city. Quote, I've always been interested in real estate and fixing up old houses. It's always been what I wanted to do, and I saw this as an opportunity to do that and to solve a problem, he said. Acquiring the deed in March 2022 took some persistence. He took it over from a financial institution, paying the taxes on the property, after continually asking about it. The owner had moved out and was not maintaining the house because of health limitations. 
Hoffman eventually convinced the company to sell him the tax certificate after coming across an article in the Courier about the house facing demolition and bringing it to the attention of a company executive. They made a decision to relinquish it because of the risk, he said. He poured his life savings into acquiring the property. He had little college debt compared with the average student. He joined the Iowa Army National Guard after high school and received tuition assistance in return for his service. Hoffman credits his UNI professors and the Black Hawk County Treasurer's Office for helping him learn about real estate and YouTube videos for advice on home renovation. It was an eight-month job. Hoffman leaned on contractors for the biggest aspects of the job, like plumbing and electric. Smaller jobs he took on himself, with the support of family and friends. He completed most of the work after graduating in May of 2022. The house became his full-time job. Quote, I worked 14-hour days. Whenever I woke up, I'd start working. I went to bed when I was too exhausted from working, Hoffman said. Quote, I've never built steps before in my life. I was out there so late at night with a protractor, solving math equations, figuring out what angle they needed to be at. You can see they're still not perfectly level and sloped down, he added. <laughs> Courier reporters, editors, choose top 10 local stories of 2023. Story submitted by Courier staff. Each December, Courier reporters look back at their favorite stories of the past year. They may recall what now seems like tempests in teapots, long since calmed or foretell storms on the horizon, a beloved local figure lost, or an iconic hotspot rising from the ashes. Some are controversial. Some are inspirational. Some are aspirational. We hope you find all ten collected here to be interesting. The first one is titled, Salvation Army Feeds Bodies and Souls, Waterloo, Loaves and Fishes. In the hands of Jesus, little became enough to feed multitudes. Kathy Ford knows something about what that feels like. As the cook responsible for the Salvation Army's noon lunch on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, she knows what it means to stretch her food budget. Her hot lunches must fill the bellies of 70 to 80 people. Sometimes she supplements a meal with homemade soup tossed together from pantry ingredients. Extra side dishes take place of less protein. Noon lunch is one of the many valued services at the Salvation Army. In 2022, 49,971 meals were served, a 42% increase from the 35,208 meals served in 2020. Ford believes in the power of prayer. Quote, We say Kathy has the red phone to God, said Grace Fee, social ministries director. Quote, she has prayed for potatoes and, miraculously, potatoes were donated. Unquote. Quote, food is a basic human need, and there's something very healing about a good meal. Kathy's prayers being answered is a testimony to the need, and that God is really blessing that program in a specific way, said Major Martin Thies. Quote, it strengthens me every day. I believe I will have what I need to feed people. 
Whatever comes out of this kitchen must be good, taste good, and look great. It may be the only meal these people will eat that day, or the only hot meals they'll get for the week, Ford said. That story was signed by Melody Parker. The next one, author Nancy Price, remembered as Grand Lady, Cedar Falls. Best-selling Cedar Falls novelist, poet, and artist Nancy Price once said, quote, I love creating a world of my own making that I can enter at will. Readers from around the world, and in 18 different languages, entered those worlds with her in more than a dozen novels, carried along by Price's stories and characters. Price was 98 when she died, on November 20th in Waterloo. She wrote well into her 90s. Her final novel, a sequel to Sleeping with the Enemy, was set in Cedar Falls, and it will be published in about a year. Price is remembered by friends as generous, lively, curious, gracious, and kind. She was a woman of intellect and spirit, as well as a gifted writer, poet, and artist. Quote, Nancy was a grand lady, and her longtime friend Barbara Lowensberry of Cedar Falls, University of Northern Iowa professor emeritus, and author of a recent Virginia Woolf trilogy. A UNI professor, Price took a leave of absence in 1968 to write A Natural Death, published in 1973. She later returned to UNI to teach creative writing. Lonesbury said Price was ahead of her time when Sleeping with the Enemy was released in 1987. It became a successful movie in 1991, starring Julia Roberts. Quote, Mom would want to be remembered through her books, her son David Thompson said. Quote, she has quite a body of work that I think people would find interesting to read. Unquote. This story was written by Melody Parker. And now, listeners, we just want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 29th on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this public service announcement. Kate fell in love with her husband after one date and with her son after one look, and she risked it all by trying meth just one time. Meth never, ever. Visit yourlifeiowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the New York Times, written by Michelle Cottle, the 2023 high school yearbook of American politics. It has been such a special political year, brimming with extraordinary, even historic moments. From an ex-president indicted to a Senate staffer busted for making porn at work, each fresh development made you proud to be an American. Singling out the exceptional events and players was tougher than ever. I mean, when Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't even merit a mention. But making hard calls is part of my job, and the true standouts deserve a shout-out. Most likely to be picked last in gym class, Matt Gates. Many Americans fantasize about taking up their pitchforks and storming the boss's office. But in the history of Congress, only this Florida man 
has succeeded, metaphorically of course, leading a coup against his own party speaker, the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, followed by the chaotic scramble for his replacement, became a slow-rolling, breathtaking fiasco that ground the House to a halt and made the entire Republican conference look like a pack of petty, pouty, incompetent preschoolers. Way to build the brand, guys. Most fabulous, fabulist, George Santos. Many politicians lie, but this recently ousted congressman from New York approached the task with a Baroque panache of which few could even conceive, falsely asserting that the September 11th attacks claimed his mother's life, that he was a college volleyball star, that he was a producer of the Broadway atrocity Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, so macabre, so pointless, so bizarre. Cannot wait to see his next act. Slowest learner, Robert Menendez. Let's say you got yourself indicted on federal corruption charges that, luckily for you, ultimately resulted in a hung jury. What lesson would you learn from the experience? The senior senator from New Jersey seems to have taken his 2017 near-miss as a license to go all-in on the sketchy behavior. He was indicted again and accused of a years-long bribery scheme in which he took hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for serving the interests of three New Jersey businessmen and the government of Egypt. Mr. Menendez insists he has done nothing wrong and that the government is engaging in primitive hunting, anything possible. But the gold bars and envelopes fat with cash stashed around his house are not a good look. Worst Date Night, Lauren Bobert. Props to the Colorado Congresswoman for putting the thrill back into taking your kids to the theater. Hey honey, are you sure our Beetlejuice seats are in the non-groping section? Least likely to succeed. The Republican-led House. Let's give it up for one of the most dysfunctional, unproductive Congresses of modern times. Least surprising downfall, Kevin McCarthy. At this point, what is left for me to say about this tragically hollow feature? He sold his soul and betrayed American democracy for nine lousy months in the Speaker's chair. Once dethroned, he wasted no time packing up his toys and slinking out of the house which may have been his first smart move in years. Most boring reboot? Impeachment, the Joe Biden version, also known as Donald Trump's revenge. Worst catchphrase, Bidenomics. No, no, no. The administration geniuses who embraced this sad phrase should be tried for political malpractice. And even if you can't stop the spread, people, don't let the president tweet about it. Biggest turnaround? John Fetterman. The early months of 2023 were rough for the Pennsylvania senator, who was struggling with the lingering effects of a stroke and wound up hospitalized for depression. Even many of his fans were wondering, was he up to the job? But at some point, he found his mojo and began calling out political BS wherever he perceived it, often to the dismay of progressives. He has come out swinging for Israel, called out fellow Democrats who fail to grasp that it isn't xenophobic to be concerned about the border, and dinged Gavin Newsom 
the attention-thirsty governor of California. He denounced the planned acquisition of U.S. Steel by a Japanese company, and he went hard at his colleague, Mr. Menendez, for allegedly being a corrupt sleazeball, including paying Mr. Santos to record a trolley video advising Bobby from New Jersey on how to ride out a scandal. Best Poison Pen, Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney. We have a tie. First came Romney, A Reckoning, McKay Copen's book in which the retiring Republican senator and erstwhile presidential nominee laments the sad devolution of his political party. Then, just in time for the holiday gifting season, Ms. Cheney topped the bestseller list with Oath and Honor, which isn't, as its subtitle claims, a memoir and a warning, so much as an evisceration of Mr. McCarthy and other Trump toadies. So festive. Biggest masochist, Mike Johnson. At this point, what sensible person would want to be Speaker of the House? Best breakout performance, Nikki Haley. As the lone woman in the Republican presidential primary debates, she repeatedly outshone the other candidates, giving a big boost to her campaign for top Trump understudy. Biggest flop, Ron DeSantis. After all the hype, it turns out that, quote, Trump without the crazy is just an awkward, aggrieved, opportunist, anti-charismatic, aspiring autocrat with a mile-wide cruel streak and the people skills of Mark Zuckerberg crossed with Richard Nixon. Most likely to be given an atomic wedgie, Vivek Ramaswamy. If Ms. Haley doesn't get him, Chris Christie will. Most pathetic Nepo baby, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Seriously, man, put your shirt back on. Spare us the anti-vax lunacy and stop pretending you are some courageous anti-establishment rebel outsider. Your last name is Kennedy, for God's sake. Most problematic Nepo baby, Hunter Biden. A lot of families have their own version of Hunter. And the president's unconditional love for his troubled child is heartwarming. That said, with an impeachment investigation and his re-election campaign heating up, Biden needs to finally figure out how to handle questions and accusations about his younger son without losing his cool or sounding defensive. Also, standing by Hunter is one thing, letting him slouch around at a state dinner is quite another. Biggest loser? Fox News. The network agreed to pay $787.5 million to settle a defamation suit with Dominion Voting Systems. But even without a messy trial, the case revealed plenty about the conservative outlet's willingness to lie to viewers. Plus, in the process, the Murdochs felt compelled to cut loose their biggest, most unhinged MAGA star, Tucker Carlson, much to the disappointment of his postmenopausal fans. And, oh yeah, there's another defamation suit, this one from Smartmatic, still grinding on. So much winning. Runner-up, Rudy Giuliani. This month, a federal jury ordered the man, previously known as America's mayor, to pay two former Georgia election workers $148 million in damages for defaming them 
in the course of spreading election fraud lies. Immediately after the ruling, Mr. Giuliani re-upped his lies about the women, prompting them to sue him again. A couple of days later, he filed for bankruptcy protection. It's all a bold strategy. Let's see if it pays off for him. Biggest legal curveball? The Colorado Supreme Court. On December 19th, the Colorado Supreme Court found that Mr. Trump had participated in an insurrection and is thus barred from holding office again under the 14th Amendment. The stunner of a ruling disqualifies the Republican front-runner from appearing on the state's presidential primary ballot. Similar suits in other states have fallen flat, and the Trump campaign said it is appealing the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, it should be noted, includes three justices appointed by Mr. Trump. Just when you thought the 2024 election couldn't get any weirder. Speaking of the MAGA king, as usual, he was ineligible in our regular awards, seeing as how he operates in a political class all his own. That said, it seems appropriate to recognize his historic status as the first former president to be criminally indicted. Big time. We're talking 91 felony counts, state and federal, ranging from obstruction of justice to racketeering. Is this achievement more or less notable than his being the only president to earn two impeachments? Hard to say. But at this rate, to distinguish himself in 2024, Mr. Trump will need to go really big, perhaps by running for president from prison? Next, from the Des Moines Register, Distracted driving is a scourge. Iowa needs a hands-free law now. In less than a month, the 2024 Iowa legislature will begin its work, even before the Iowa caucuses. We can expect divisive proposals to soak up a lot of time and attention, but here's a wish for lawmakers to quickly take one simple, popular, and overdue action for the sake of everybody's safety. It's long past time to make it illegal for drivers to use a phone or any other handheld electronic device while driving. Legislation to make that happen has stalled out several times, including in 2023. Scholars debate the precise contribution of distracted driving to deaths and severe injuries on the road. But almost all the reasons drivers get distracted, reading a text, navigating a call, thinking that a stretch of open highway is familiar and deserted enough to permit watching a video, boil down to impatience or boredom. In a 2020 survey, over a third of respondents told the Washington, D.C. nonprofit TRIP that they'd read text messages while driving in the previous 30 days. TRIP also says the nationwide number of deaths tied to distraction-affected crashes grew 13% from 2019 to 2021. Iowa's hands-free driving proposal is popular, so don't wait on it. The agencies that police Iowa's roads, including the Iowa State Patrol, have vocally supported a hands-free law, something 34 other states have. Lawmakers have heard tragic stories about the inadequacy of current law that makes it illegal only to write, send, or view an electronic message, 
After a woman was run down on her bicycle in 2017, the distracted driver was acquitted because it wasn't clear under the law whether his attention to his phone was criminal. Many legislators have also expressed enthusiasm. Senate File 547, which includes reasonable exceptions when handling a device would be allowed, was approved 47-0 to 0 this spring and advanced through an Iowa House committee in late March, but it was never brought up on the House floor before the session adjourned five weeks later. The House could still consider the same bill in the 2024 session. Leaders should act early on and not risk it slipping off the map again. Other issues that make roads dangerous need attention, too. An analysis published in the New York Times this week noted that, unlike in other countries, pedestrian deaths in the United States have been increasing for a decade, and that the increase was tied almost completely to sharp increase in pedestrians being killed at night. Other countries have smartphones, too, so there aren't simple and obvious explanations. The story didn't reach definitive conclusions, but one hypothesis is that American drivers' unusual preference for automatic over manual transmissions contributes to lower focus and more distraction. Other factors are big contributors to unsafe roads. The profiles of vehicles keep getting larger, making it more difficult to see the ground in front of and behind them. Street systems for decades were engineered with the primary goal of conveying as many cars and trucks as possible as quickly as possible, which helps encourage speeding and leaves cyclists and pedestrians as an afterthought. One of the premises of the Des Moines Vision Zero initiative is aggressively updating or remaking portions of streets to be more friendly to all users. We need a culture shift against distracted driving. Let's start with the law. Allowing law enforcement to write $100 tickets won't stop distracted driving. Indiana passed a hands-free law in 2020 and has handed out over 10,000 citations, but the number of crashes involving distraction went up from 2021 to 2022. According to television station WISH of Indianapolis. But making the law more strict is a necessary step in a longer haul to change culture and habits. Safety advocates often point out that driving drunk and not wearing seatbelts used to be considered unremarkable choices. Laws did not change those habits overnight. In time, though, seatbelts became the expectation and drunken driving became more stigmatized. The expectation and penalties in the law are a building block. As of December 13, 358 people have died in crashes this year in Iowa. Drivers make mistakes, but distracted driving mistakes are needless and preventable. The legislature should make clear the expectation that drivers in Iowa will focus on that task. This is signed by Lucas Grundmeyer on behalf of the Register Editorial Board. Next, from the Des Moines Register, Kim Reynolds wrongly elevates Christianity above any other belief. Editorial by Connie Ryan, who is the executive director 
of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa. Iowans are people who value our freedoms. There are many freedoms protected by the Constitution, but two that are perhaps the most cherished are that of religious freedom and freedom of speech. Governor Kim Reynolds has a responsibility and a role to protect every freedom guaranteed for all people, regardless of her personal opinion. As an elected official, she took an oath to protect those freedoms for every person. Rather than upholding that oath, she is playing politics with our religious freedom and our freedom of speech. In a released statement regarding a satanic temple display at the Iowa Capitol, the governor dismissed the freedom of speech of those who placed the display in the People's House and inserted her own personal beliefs. Additionally, the governor disrespected people of faith who are not Christian. She encouraged, quote, all those of faith, unquote, to pray over the Capitol and to further recognize the nativity scene as the reason for the season, unquote. The governor's statement is offensive to those who are exercising their right to their beliefs and to display those beliefs in a public space. The statement is also offensive to those of faith who are Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Baha'i, and other faith traditions. Does Reynolds understand or not that she is governor of all Iowans, including a diversity of Iowans who are not Christian and people of all beliefs? The founders of this great nation placed the most cherished of our freedoms and our values in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Every elected official holds the solemn duty to protect those freedoms for every person whom they represent. To do less diminishes our freedoms and, in this case, places religious freedom and freedom of speech in peril for every Iowan. Reynolds may be Christian herself, but in this democracy grounded in religious freedom, she is not a Christian governor. She should never elevate one belief above all other beliefs. She is accountable to every Iowan, people of many faiths and beliefs. She took an oath. Reynolds should promise to do better to uphold that oath and to inclusively represent and protect the freedoms of every Iowan, regardless of the political influences to do otherwise. Our author here, Connie Ryan, is executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, which convenes and leads diverse voices to challenge extremism, defend democracy, protect religious freedom, and safeguard the rights of all Iowans. We have an editorial written by Patty Judge, which appeared in the Des Moines Register. Rules under the guise of net neutrality slows path to Internet for All in rural America. Patty Judge is the co-founder of Focus on Rural America, and she was the Iowa Lieutenant Governor from 2007 to 2011, and the Iowa Secretary of Agriculture from 1999 to 2007. One of the top issues I hear over and over across Iowa and the Midwest is the negative impact of our country's rural broadband gap. And yet, new sweeping regulations from Washington, disguised under the banner of net neutrality, threaten to slow or altogether derail 
ongoing rural broadband build-out progress. From education and health care to business and social opportunities, all of us rely on high-speed Internet to thrive in today's digital world. The disparities in connectivity across the country, however, continue to grow more stark between rural and urban communities. In fact, nearly one in five rural Americans still live without reliable access, or any access, to broadband. Numbers like this explain why many in rural areas feel increasingly disconnected from a shared, prosperous future enjoyed by the rest of the nation. The Biden administration deserves tremendous credit for its ambitious goal to deliver, quote, Internet for all. As part of this mission, tens of billions of dollars in historic broadband funding are being distributed across the country to expand Internet access. But these investments themselves will not be enough to connect rural America. Internet providers face significant headwinds during network build-outs, such as terrain challenges, complex contracting rules, and skilled labor shortages, to name a few. If we are serious in our intentions to connect rural America, we must work to remove as many of these roadblocks standing in the way of efficient broadband deployment as possible. Instead of removing barriers, federal agencies like the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, seem eager to micromanage our nation's broadband networks by proposing additional blockades. This includes the FCC's net neutrality plan to force 1930s-era utility regulations onto our modern Internet. Make no mistake, the FCC's overzealous regulation and micromanagement will unleash an antiquated regulatory framework that pulls us further away from a fully connected country. It will drive away critical private investments and add burdens to the already complex challenge of deploying broadband. Since 1996, broadband providers have invested more than $2.1 trillion into our national communications infrastructure, with over $102 billion invested in 2022 alone while the $42 billion plus in upcoming broadband equity access and deployment funds, including over $415 million Iowa will receive, will certainly have a positive effect. Achieving the goal of universal high-speed Internet access will also require private investments, unneeded regulatory interference from Washington, disincentivizes private network investments, by introducing uncertainty for broadband providers. The last time the FCC imposed misguided utility rules on broadband providers between 2015 and 2017, economic data demonstrated private investments to be $30 billion less than expected figures absent this regulation. Furthermore, public and private leaders have made clear that the task of connecting rural America is daunting at best and near impossible at worst, thanks to a perfect storm of geographic, regulatory, operational, and economic challenges. The last thing Washington should do right now 
is add to existing costs and burdens for providers working to get the job done. We have made staggering progress to connect millions of previously unserved rural Americans across the country and now have the once-in-a-generation opportunity to complete the job. We cannot and must not allow unwarranted regulatory power grabs to get in the way of reaching that goal. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 29th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just go to our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 